This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome back into the run. This is a ten-part podcast. On why do you sound so exhausted? Because huh? I'm th- I'm thinking about Game Seven, Roy. I'm just thinking about it. It was like you remember what Dexter Fowler said. He said that felt like we played a whole season in one game, and and he's he's right. That's that's what the game <laughs> itself felt like. And that's after you build it up for, what, six, seven months of your life, eight months of your life with the dream of getting there. And then the full day after game six and just the entirety of the run, the weight of everything we've been doing, Roy, as we relive this stuff. And then the game itself was just so damn epic and huge and twisty and turny. It's it's overwhelming, frankly, and you heard it in my tone. So game six ends. And you're headed back to your hotel. Mm-hmm. And you know that tomorrow is game seven. What are your thoughts? Just at, not as a broadcaster and as a professional, just a damn Chicago boy going, tomorrow's the day. I had an obsession during and after game six, which is how do I stay for game seven? Because the original game plan for me and my radio show with my partner, Jason Goff, we were broadcasting from the broadcast booth up there above game six. And we do that um, in our midday show. And then we watch the game. And our plan was then we get on a flight and go home to Chicago and watch game seven at home with our families or in a bar (laughs) in Chicago. And me, a lifelong baseball human who's watched all this stuff and gotten here, I'm like, during game six, I'm like, if they win tonight, I'm supposed to go home tomorrow? I'm supposed to leave Cleveland four hours before game seven of the World Series that the Cubs are in? You know, Roy, there's no way in hell I could do that. So I spend all of game six, and after scrambling, thinking about how I'm supposed to get home. I was obsessed. <laughs> You're just looking at flights and just figuring out the logistics. All right, the game has to end by this time. I'm at the, it, the is, airport it's, not, time. it's not even doable because my boss said, look, I need you on the air at 9 a.m. in Chicago the morning after game seven. I, I need you there. So... Here's what happened, and I've never told this story before. All right, so after game six, I got a text from my friend, Len Casper. Hey, we're all hanging in the team hotel in the bar. Come hang out. So I'm thinking, are players going to be there? I don't know. I know Len's going to be there. Do I belong there? Yes, hell yes, I belong there. Let's go. So we go over, and we're hanging out in the team hotel bar, and um, we're drinking, and I'm thinking, I can't leave this. What am I going to do? And I see a friend of mine who works for the Cubs and he's there and I've known him for a long time. Actually, my band played at his wedding like 20 (laughs) years before. (laughs) And this is like, this goes with the age old axiom, right? Be nice to people every step of your life because you never know what can come back around, right? You never know if you are karmically correct. Every once in a while, things might happen. So I'm talking to him. He works for the Cubs, and I'm explaining my predicament. And he looks at me, and he says, give me a second. And he walks over, and he talks to the biggest boss that he can possibly find. And then he comes back, and he says, if you'd like it, there is a seat on the team plane for you tomorrow night after game seven. Wow. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He said, "Um, you'll need to have an ID. Do you have legal ID? You know, I'm like, yes, I do have legal ID. He said, okay, all right, uh, uh, here's this email. Email this person, send them a picture of your ID, and you'll get directions. I don't know if it's a sad flight or a happy flight, but you have a seat on the plane tomorrow. 
And so I knew I was going to game seven. I was not in Cleveland for game six. I was on my couch in my robe, much to the chagrin of my wonderful, wonderful partner, who I love very, very much, who wanted to watch something else on television. I'm on my computer on StubHub looking at tickets for game seven. And I'd made the decision during game six. I just say, if they win, I have to buy this ticket. I don't know if I'm going to go, but I have to buy the ticket. Number one, because the price is only going to go up. It's just going to go higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So just get it now tonight before the hoopla. And I pulled this up for you. I'm digging in the crates here and uh, found the old StubHub order from November 1st, 2016 at (laughs) 8.45 p.m. $2,577.50 for a bleacher seat three rows back. In left holy, center field. Holy hell. What did you have to rationalize in order to make that decision? What, what, how many things had to be battered away in your mind? What I justified it, I justified it rooted in this. One, this is literally the first, it's once in a lifetime. Two, I don't own jewelry. I don't own a lot of shoes. I have no car in New York City. So... If there's ever one thing to be frivolous on, okay, I'll do this. Now, what sucks is that if you spend that on yourself and your girl knows, then she's got to get a good Christmas gift. Because here's the catch. Her birthday was like literally the next week. So you can't treat yourself that nice. And I had to go all out for her birthday. So it's like, this is like a double hit. So as you're scrolling through prices, you're realizing, all right, I just got to multiply this by two. Add the fees and multiply by two yeah. for the bank account yeah. over the course of the next 10 days. Yeah, something like that. And so the issue wasn't getting the ticket. It wasn't making the decision to go. It was getting permission from the Daily Show producers a week before the presidential election. Hey, hey, man. I know that you hired me to do a job, and I know that at this point, I've only been working here a year, and my contract is up for renegotiation in December. Would you mind if I um, skedaddle away right fast? Like, I'm walking to work, and I'm wearing the robe, by the way. I'm wearing the robe to work. It's game seven. I don't care. And I'm walking down the street, and this is what I was telling you about before, how just random New Yorkers were, like, speaking and, like, yeah, man, good for y'all. Go Cubs. And, you know, I got the, I got the big W flag in my window of my apartment. I'm that guy. So you're walking the streets of New York in a full-length Chicago in Cubs bathroom. bathrobe. Uh, still, still not assured of being able to even go, but you are representing and living that On passion. On the train. All of that, dog, just straight public places in a bathing garment. So how do you say, you can't say no to that passion. If you're The Daily Show and you see somebody you value who wants it that bad, you got to say yes and turn it into content. I walk in, Trevor does a double take of me, and he just goes, what are you doing here? I go, what? What are you doing here? And I went right back home. My girl was at the house. I just started packing. Like, I packed as light as I possibly could because I knew I would need, I knew I wouldn't get a hotel. So I just had my laptop bag and a roller bag. And I got to Cleveland probably around 5 o'clock. And then I just went straight to the stadium and just walked around and, like, just... Just took it all in because I knew I was sleeping at the airport. Like there was no hotel in this equation. So you get there at five o'clock to the Cleveland airport and you make your way there. And and me, I did a radio show, did the radio show midday there at the stadium and just never left. 
just stuck around, you know, as the rest of the media started to show up and the storm started to gather and you see people arriving from every bit of the perimeter of the stadium and the vibe just built and built and built. So we know how I prepared for Game 7, how you prepared for Game 7. I found it interesting what Pat Hughes broke down, you know, because, you know, we're more observers than participants in a way. But Pat was close to everybody within the organization and had a run-in with some people in the hotel that I think really paints the picture of just how tense of a day this was for just Cubs Nation in general. I remember going into the gym, the hotel gym. I, I got a little workout the morning of Game 7 just to try to, you know, reduce some anxiety. And, and I love working out anyway. But there were about 10 guys in the traveling party in the gym that day. There were trainers, there were coaches, uh, no ball players, but uh, there was some front office guys. And one thing I noticed, not a single person said a word to anyone else. Everyone is just kind of focused on their own job, thinking about game seven coming up later at night. And I'm just looking around and I didn't want to bother anybody, so I didn't. And I just got on my treadmill and did my little run and did my stretching. And, and But I kept looking around thinking, this is really kind of odd. You know, nobody's even talking to anyone. But it's just, <laughs> there's this um, this feeling of what is going to happen. Could you imagine that, Matt? Could you imagine you're just on the elliptical machine and you just, you want to say something. You want to look over at this guy and so, how you doing today? Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth right now before you jinx it. Everybody's got their thought process that they're dying with. And what's left to say? What is left to say, man? It's been this long. It's been the volatile, emotional swings of everything to get here. And it's all it's all going to play out on the field. That, that's the thing, right? The truth is going to end up out there on the field tonight, no matter what anybody says. And we've already said enough damn much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I will say, you know, you were up there, you know, you're in the press box, you're up there on press row. I was in left center field with the common men, me and the other people who paid $2,577 damn dollars and 50 cents on StubHub. And now, All those know. common people who can yeah. afford to drop three grand on a baseball game. <laughs> Plus a plane ticket and rental car at the last minute. And <laughs> the vibe in the stands was definitely tense on both sides. There, like my experience in sitting in most major league outfields is that there's a lot of yelling and shouting. And of course, you're cheering at key moments and key strikeouts and key runs, but it was fairly quiet. It was like watching a game closer to the dugout or down the line where it's just a different energy the closer you are to the field. But the outfield is normally chaotic and hectic. But it was people it was people on both sides going, I don't know if we're going to do this. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, because a game is so long and the setting matters so much because you end up feeling like whatever vibe you are surrounded by in your intimate circle, right? The um, I, I was in the press box, but then for game six and seven to watch the game, they were like, you need to go to the auxiliary press box, which, because there were so many of us. So they created three rows for the herd of extra media trying to say, I was there, you know, like me, all the way down the right field line. 
And all of a sudden you find yourself sitting with random people like Brendan from the Steve Dahl radio show. And I was sitting with Dane Placco from Fox 32 um, News. <laughs> and, and both those guys, huge Cub fans, huge Cub fans. But Dane Placco, season ticket holder, good guy, good guy. But sitting there pretending that he's completely apathetic, that he's totally professional media, lucky enough to actually be there for that game seven. So we're all the way down the right field line by the foul pole, had a great view of the bullpen, which would come into play later on. It was definitely more relaxed as the game went on. You know, once the Cubs got a couple of runs, but we were still like tense and, you know, we'll get to the ninth inning and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll you know when we get later in the episode, when we get to Raja Davis and all of that stuff in the ninth, I'll tell you what started happening in the outfield and got a little tense. I I wouldn't go fight nobody. I paid too much money for that robe. That robe was too nice. But you know, it it definitely you know as the game got ready to start and people settled in, it was definitely you know, dare I say, gentlemanly between Cub and Indian fans, just in terms of, I see you are here, and I am also here, and made the best man. I have no hatred for you, but I must defeat you. See, there was that respect all the way through, because if the Indians were going to win, it was going to be their first World Series win in 68 years. The Cubs' drought, as we know, was at 108, so some fan base was going to be happy, some vaunted historical franchise was going to get their conscience clear. And a welcome to you. On November 2nd, it's Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. A World Series that features the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs. Tied at three games apiece. And heading into the game, you got two pitchers, Kyle Hendricks, who Cubs fans by this time had trusted. Super low pulse, had outpitched Kershaw to win the National League Championship Series and get to the World Series. And the Indians were feeling good because it was their ace. It's Corey Kluber, who was great all year, was real good in game one, real good in game four. But he was trying to do his Bob Gibson thing of like one, four, and seven in a World Series. And it just doesn't happen anymore because people's arms are not built up the way they used to be. And Kluber, right from the get-go, you could tell that he was not himself. He'd end up going four innings and not striking out anybody, which is not like him because he had swing and miss stuff. That was his thing. But before you even got to the stat line, first dude is your guy Dexter Fowler who goes yard and the place explodes with the Cub fans that were there. And man, we were off and running. It was a gentlemanly cheer in the outfield, as I did not know the confrontational. I'd heard rumors of Cleveland Browns fans, so I wasn't sure. That's the other thing. This is also my first time at, was it Progressive Field at this time? Was it Jacob? I call it the Jake. Listen, sidebar. Whatever the first name is of your stadium, that's the damn name of the stadium for life. As far as I'm concerned, the Miami Marlins still play at Joe Robbie. I know you <laughs> built a whole new stadium in a different part of town. I yeah, that was a care. football stadium and everything. It's Joe Robbie Stadium. So, and the Cleveland Indians play at Jacobs Field, aka the Jake. I know, I know. Nobody wants to get blood on their robe, like you said, and nobody wants to get their ass kicked out. Can you imagine getting kicked out? for a dumbass fight in inning five of game seven of the World Series. So people are- $2,577.50 has a way of making you behave yourself. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. What did it feel like to you? I, I think from, from my perch and from people I talked to after, I'm thinking 35, 40% Cub fans, which is a lot, but- the influx on the secondary market, because there are a lot of people, I don't know, hanging out on their couch who went through on StubHub and spent, what was it, $2,577 on a, on a ticket. A lot of, lot of Cub money came in late. So in the stands, I'm thinking 30 35% Cub fans. There was enough Cub fans to sing Go Cubs, Go Acapella at the end of the game. You know, So there was definitely that. But you know, things kind of evened out in the outfield in the third. Carlos Santana gets the RBI single. And so, you know, it's knotted up at one. And at that point, we're kind of both sides are kind of settling into, okay, this is going to be 
This is going to be a bit of a battle. What's it going to be? Bryant tags. Davis catches. Here comes Bryant. Throw to the plate. High. Safe. Under the tag. And the Cubs lead 2-1. to one. High fly ball into right center. Davis came in, goes back. Will get there off the wall. In to score is Zobrist. And the lead is 2. It's 3-1. to one. Uh, And the Cubs pulled ahead in the fourth. A rally ends up leading to a sacrifice fly for Chris Bryant to score on a tag play at home for a 2-1 lead. Contreras doubles, and it's a 3-1 lead. Javi homers in the fifth. Lester, here's a fly ball into right center. Back at the wall, off the bat of Baez. The Cubs are leading 4-1 in Game 7 of the World Series. People are are thinking this is actually going to happen, making celebration plans for several innings here because Corey Kluber gets launched. He gives up four runs, all earned, doesn't strike out anybody. It's the Cubs' night, right? Rizzo drives in Bryant from first, and the Cubs' lead goes to 5-1. to one. It's 5-1, Roy, and everybody's prepping for what they think is inevitable at this point. Now, what we didn't get time to ask Joe Madden about was why the decision to pull Kyle Hendricks when he was on his way to a quality start. Four and two-thirds, one run, for the most part, his stuff was working. Hendricks was Hendricksing, as the youth would say. So we can question everything now. But at the time, I was like, what are you doing? That's your horse, ride your horse. Well, he had another horse that he wanted to get in there. He, in his mind, he had mapped it out before the game. I'm going to ride one horse till, I don't know, the third, the fourth. Then I'm going to ride my John Lester horse in the middle innings, and then I'm going to hand it off to Aroldis Chapman, who is bigger and stronger than any horse, any thoroughbred you could find. Like, Joe had that locked in his head. So Kyle Hendricks had given up a few hits, had given up a little bit, but had found it. Like, he clearly was giving up hard contact, but then he had found it. And he throws a borderline pitch that is called a ball for a walk with four and two-thirds. And Joe's like, yep, that's it. And to this day, if I'm watching a replay of this game, Roy, and I have with the wife, we watched it one night. Another time it was on during the lockdown when there was no baseball. We watched the whole thing again. To this day, that point, when Joe goes out to get Kyle Hendricks and remove him after a borderline pitch allows a base runner, I still get mad. I get up, I walk around the room. I'm like, what are you thinking? Watch the game. And Joe knows more about baseball than I ever will. But he had a plan in his mind of what to do, and he was locked in on it as opposed to watching the game because Hendricks was rolling and could have gone six, could have gone seven, whatever they needed. Kyle Hendricks, who was dealing. Baseball just lends itself to first guessing, certainly second guessing. And Hendricks is out of the ballgame, and this starts the bullpen carousel for the Chicago Cubs, and John Lester comes in. I would have had a different reaction to the pitching change had I been watching at home and seen the footage of Lester warming up, but you're just at the game. I'm not listening on headphones. I just see him pull Kyle Hendricks, and I'm like, what a no! And then I turn, and you see John Lester slowly. He's got a slow trot. I love you, John Lester, but that trot to the mound. I know he's a starter. He hasn't had to work on the bullpen sprint in from the outfield, but it was a little slow going. I, oh, and I was like, it's John Lester. Yeah. It, it was the scene. It was Randy Quaid in Major League when they bring Wild Thing out at the end of the game. And he's like, yeah, here he comes. Wild Thing. Like, it was that. And I was like, oh, okay. I think we're going to do it. Because you know what it felt like? It felt like game seven of the Diamondbacks when Randy Johnson came in to relieve Kurt Schilling. Yes, that's a great call because that is one of the indelible World Series moments where you see starters used in relief. 
And the best managers do that, you know, and we've certainly seen it a ton since, especially in a winner take all game. Absolutely. No, that's a great call. And I think Madden wanted to do his version of that. And it, it would have made sense. The thing is, we all know and knew that John Lester was kind of a mess when there was a runner on first base. Like, he couldn't hold guys on to save his life. He didn't like throwing over there. It gave him anxiety, and he was usually good enough to overcome it. But so the, the idea was to bring him into a clean inning with nobody on base, and that is not what happened. And also don't forget, Lester coming in means that Contreras is out and David Ross comes in to catch Lester. And we're going to get to Ross a little bit later in the episode. I want to talk to him a little bit about, you know, the wild pitch, you know, and, and the home run. We'll talk about the home run, too. But first, the excuse me, pass ball. Is it pass ball, wild pitch? Which one? No, it's a wild pitch. Lester bounced it. Lester, the door bounces in. It hits Ross. A run scores. Here comes Kipnis. He's safe. It's 5-3. And then, and Ross, man, he just looked so bad. Because it, Lester bounces it, and then it comes up, and it hits off Ross's face mask, and the face mask goes sideways and eventually falls off, and Ross falls down the wrong direction. Two runs scored. Two runs scored on one wild pitch. Straight and then, comedy. Oh, dude, <laughs> what did it feel like in the stands when two runs score on a wild pitch, Roy? Because head, heads were in their hands in the press box. In the stands, the Indians fans must have been losing Let's go. Let's go. So it's super ugly when Lester and Ross come into the game. It's a 5-1 lead, becomes a 5-3 lead. But Lester stuck around. That's the thing that sometimes people forget. I mean, there's a million things in this game that sometimes people forget, Roy. But Lester ends up throwing three innings. He throws up throws three innings, and he only gives up those runs that happened early. He struck out four. He did the job that Joe Madden thought he could do and built the bridge to Aroldis Chapman. It was Aroldis Chapman in the eighth inning needing to get four outs for a save, and you could argue whether Lester should have been allowed to finish the eighth inning and keep going. But again, Joe had his plan, and he was locked and loaded for Chapman in the eighth inning. And Chapman had a little bit of breathing room because Ross came in and hit the homer in the seventh, which made him, and I don't know if you really want this moniker. I guess it's an honor, but it's not what you always want to be known as. The oldest player to ever hit a home run in the World Series. That's amazing. Which is I, I think testament. that's badass. I think that's badass. And he's the only guy whose last swing in the big leagues was a game seven home run. Only guy in the history of the game. That's insane, though. Right? <laughs> that is insane, dog. It, so guess what, Matt? We get to bring in David Ross himself. Now, he's the now manager of the Cubs, but of course, back in 2016, he was playing for the Cubs. So we'll talk a little bit with him about the lead-up to the game, his star turn, and then I'm gonna we, we, we should have Ross take us through those final innings of Game 7. The Rajah Davis home run, the rain delay, what was discussed in the clubhouse, and lots more. Can't wait to talk to David Ross. We'll do that next. All right, so the day of Game 7 of the World Series, David Ross, you walk into the clubhouse, and what was everybody doing? You remember? I think there was a video game involved. Yeah, everybody's playing Mario Kart. They're all surrounded. There's a stand-up uh, Mario Kart going on. Uh, <laughs> Dex, Riz, I forgot who all was was around it, but I, you know, those two stood out. Who packed um, the, the Nintendo? Yeah, they're locked it. They're locked into Mario Kart, and I'm I'm trying to like, are we serious right now? Like Game Seven of the World Series? Like, can we just lock it in? I mean, that was that was our group, right? I mean, they're just relax. We knew how good we were. We were at a point where we were just doing our thing uh, all year long. And um, it just goes to show like how little affected our group from outside noise or, you know, any kind of things that we were worried about just didn't, or that people were worried about just didn't creep into to our realm. We, we really had our own little bubble uh, that stayed inside our, our, uh, our team. Papa Rossi, Mr. Rossi, gentleman Rossi. Let's talk a little bit about 
what was going on in the bullpen when you all were, uh, you and Lester were warming each other up. What was the feeling in the bullpen as the game went on and on and on and the warm-ups went on and on and on? What was the like? What were you and John discussing, or was it just more of a tense silence? I was getting loose. He started tossing. Everybody's just trying to stay ready and mentally focused. I didn't talk to John much at all. He had gotten up a couple times, and I think he was on what two days rest. One, yeah, two days rest, pitching on the third day. So my main concern when I talked to Joe and Boz, when they came to me, when I got back to the bullpen and we're talking through some things, the only thing I brought up was, you know, you don't want to get John up and down multiple times on two days rest and, and spin those bullets in the bullpen. But he looked sharp down there. He was, he was firing and he was ready to go. Some of that's nervous energy too, right? Like you just want to be ready. Uh, the bullpen scenario is so much different than being a starter where um, you know when you're coming in there, you're trying to trying to be ready and also conserve at the same time. I, I was sitting in the auxiliary press box, which is way down the right field line, David, so I could look down and see in the bullpen. It felt like he was throwing for an hour. I mean, it's just such a <laughs> weird place for you to be in the first place. You're not supposed to be out in the bullpen during the middle of a game. I mean, look, any, anything goes in game seven, right? And we used three catchers in that game all with, with big, big moments. And so... Yeah, you're down there. You're trying to stay ready. You understand the magnitude of what's going on. But stopping throwing also when you're at the back end of, of a major league season and you're a veteran guy who's got a lot of miles on your arm, you just want to keep continue to to keep stay loose and, and stay ready. Just keeping the body, you know, loose and lathered and 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 ready to go. So you come in and uh, you're all about run prevention. You know, that's what that's what you're there for. Um and making sure Lester's great. And for the first time in 105 years, two runs score on a wild pitch. That must have been fun. That must have felt good. Yeah, <laughs> it felt great. Let me tell you how good that felt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, the game's kind of like we're we're doing pretty darn good, and I get in the game, and and chaos uh, ensues. I was worried about like I was going to have the bad reputation that that was going to go along with with uh, with this World Series. Yeah, it was just you know one of those things. The Kipnis matchup was perfect for John. He hadn't done anything. And you get the swing and bunt, and I come out, field it, don't get a nice grip of it, and feel my, you know, I had some stuff kind of tighten up on me for a minute, and I just turn and almost killed Rizzo. I threw it in, the like, the fifth row of, of the seats <laughs> behind first place. That felt that felt phenomenal. And then um, and then I thought we were fine. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, we were talking about, I think it was Lindor, we talked about, the pitches that we didn't want to throw to him, you know, he hit off speed really well in the zone from left-handed pitching. And something we didn't want to do was throw him off speed in the zone. And John shook to breaking ball. And I think he knew he wanted to bounce it, but he bounced it really short. And I had, I tried to block and it hit off my face mask and kicked to the right. And as I went to get up, I rolled my ankle, uh, tri- tripped over, <laughs> tripped over my feet. I mean, it gets worse the more I tell it, right? This is, this is, uh, this is such a bad replay in my mind. The, I trip over my, my feet, my, our doctor and everybody thinks I'm concussed, you know, with all my concussion history. <laughs> I, I stumble over, grab the ball. I grab, I grab the ball and throw it at home plate. It's too late. Kipnis scores from second. So absolute mess ensues as soon as I get in the game, like three or four pitches in. And yeah, it's a bad feeling for sure. What was the mood in the dugout before and after that home run? Like you talked about the energy before the game. And of course, there were a lot of ebb and flows during the game. And you know, nervousness goes up and down. At any point, when did you all feel like, okay, we're still in control. We still have a chance. I think... My, you know, right after that inning, we got out of that inning and came in and John was was flustered. And I, I told him he was throwing the ball great. You know, it was my fault. I mean, he really looked good. He was making his pitches. The stuff looked sharp. So I wanted to make sure he knew he was in a good place. So then I got up to, well, I got up to on deck and things were just working extremely fast and moving fast as as it does sometimes in the big leagues and, and especially in a World Series. So tried to slow down, calm down and, and have my at-bat. and. I had done some homework on Andrew Miller, and I know Andrew. I know his pitch is a slider. I wanted to see one 
you know, I was a little anxious early on. I remember a lot going on in my head. But then finally, I got 02 uh, on me, and he threw me a fastball up. And I remember seeing that really well. It was it was up around my eyes, and I felt like my timing was right. I was in my two-strike approach, trying to simplify things, just touch the baseball. And um, he shook. Uh, and and doing my homework that I, that I did, every time he – most of the times he shook, he shook the fastball. And so I tried to stay ready for the fastball, and he threw it down where I could where I could hit it. And I put a good swing on it, and I start running, and Rajay Davis is, you know, running back in center field and, like, looks like he's sizing it up. And I'm like, please do not catch this ball. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to run right out the uh, right field gate if he catches this ball and just, just – my, that's how my career is going to end. You know, it, it, he doesn't catch it. He jumps up there, but it goes out, and uh, what a great feeling. I feel like I just let in two runs, so feeling like everybody always asked me why I didn't celebrate. I really felt like I just got one run back that I had one of the two that I just let in, and my mind went straight to who was who's up next for um, for for them and, and how much further we had to go. You know, you don't take anything for granted, and I think there there'll be plenty of time to celebrate after we win. But let's let's get the win secured first. And I crossed home plate, and and there was Dex and Jay Hay and. Fitting, and and then I, you know, pointed to my family. My family was there. It was was uh, was was cool. You, you know, everything about that is just so cool. The the hardcore baseball stuff of you having done your homework, knowing when Andrew Miller shakes, it's probably going to be a fastball. Um, that sounds like the kind of thing. That kind of attention to detail and homework. Did you teach that stuff to Rizzo, to Bryant, to some of those kids? Is that an example of, of, of like how to prepare that you brought to them in, in your role as a veteran? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's if, – if I was as good as a hitter as Bryant and Rizzo, I, would, I wouldn't have to do that homework. You know, I have to find extra edge for me and extra little details and trying to – I did it just – at a thought of like this might be the only guy I face. I hit lefties okay. He was one of the best relievers in the game at the time. And you're just trying to find any kind of edge. You know, Miggy stronger side. Miggy was good. Was left-handed. You know, and and, and if they weren't using Wilson, I might have a chance to face Andrew Miller, which is a daunting task within itself. But luckily, a, a little bit of homework and and studying for myself and trying to trying to pick up a an edge uh, paid off. So the moment that we love so much uh, that you mic'd up in the dugout and Anthony's coming to you for some support. I, I, I can't control my emotions right now. He goes, Anchorman, I'm in a glass case of emotion. And you remember what you told him? I can't control myself. I'm trying my it's, best. It's understandably so, buddy. I'm emotional. I hear you. I'm an emotional wreck. It's only going to get worse. Just continue to breathe. That's all you can do, buddy. That's all you can do. It's only going to get worse. I'm last case of emotions right now. Yeah, yeah. Wait till the ninth with this three-run lead. <laughs> great, great veteran advice, right? Like, I mean, such bad, such bad advice I gave right there. I just, I was over there in my head thinking, you know, we had, we had a moment. I take you way back. We're in San Francisco, and Arietta takes Bumgarner deep in San Francisco, and you would have thought we won the World Series in that moment in San Francisco with the way our group reacted in the dugout. And not to be Debbie Downer, but like as a veteran that had been around postseason play before, it's like I knew we had a long way to go in that series and in that game. And so the fact that we were up a couple runs was good, but I knew it wasn't over. And they ended up coming back and winning that game. And I just remember that same those same things as we were ahead in the in in game seven, like just thinking in my head, okay, shoot, like we still got a long ways to go, and so that's where my headspace was. And when Riz came up and said that to me, like I knew, like the it didn't matter whether we had a five run lead or a one run lead, it was going to be absolutely 
daunting when you get down to the last few innings and you got a chance to win the if your mind starts thinking about winning the world series for the chicago cubs we're not going to be in a good place we have to stay in the process you have to continue to focus on each pitch each at bat don't take one thing for granted any kind of momentum in that environment is going to swing heavy to to their team to their fan base uh you don't want to give an inch you don't you just want to close out every little detail so just wait till this thing gets to the eighth and we've got a lead and we're trying to close it out. And, you know, every little ball or strike means the world. David, when Rajay Davis hits the home run. Did did your I mean is is the optimism shaken? Did you ever buy into anything with a curse? I mean you you broke two of them. You know you're part of well you're part of two teams that that broke curses. But anyway, but you know like it, Cub fans were freaked out after the home run. Three runs come across for the Cleveland Indians. All with two out. Were you guys freaked out? Was the optimism shaken? Uh, I, the curse never entered my mind. That never none of that ever really entered my mind. I think the main thing that where I was like, I'm a pretty positive guy and move on to the next moment. I move on to like, what's next? Okay. Adversity hits. How do we continue on the process to, to getting back to winning? I think the one thing that after the Rajay home run, you know, when you're a catcher and you're pitch calling and all the different things that are going through your mind, when you hit that home run, I just couldn't shake the negative, like, you got to be kidding me moment, right? Like I really, it stayed with me for four, five, six pitches, maybe a batter, maybe into the dugout a little bit. Like it really was, it was hanging over my head for a moment. Um, and then I still had to hit that following inning. So I just remember trying to shake that, you got to be kidding me. I can't believe that just happened moment. Uh, and, and I'm usually, not, I don't get into that. I'm, I'm usually turned the page pretty fast. You're not going to believe this. Just as we get ready to start the 10th, Grounds crew is told by this umpiring crew and the crew chief, John Hirschbeck, to bring out the tarp. It's rained like this already in this game. They played through it, but now they won't. And so we're going to be delayed. There's some heavier stuff coming. That's what they're anticipating. So last thing then, take us in the rain delay. Who, you know, what kind of weightlifting stuff is there in the strength room where you guys Did were? Did we in switch the from Mario Kart to Zelda during the rain delay? Yeah, I, I uh, you know, that's a, that was more, um, you know, Hayward wanted everybody. Jay Hay doesn't, doesn't, you know, he's not a real vocal person. He's not a vocal leader. Um, he leads by example. Um, he's a great human being. He wants everybody to... To, to, to support everybody and be on their side. But yet when he speaks, he speaks real truths and, and, and it's powerful. And he wanted everybody to come in the weight room and, um, you know, kind of players only be in there. And I'll, I'll never forget, we, I, I was one of the last ones in and we didn't have Chappie and uh, I went looking for Araldis and he's on the bench with his head and his hands crying. Um, and I'm like, you know, grab him and talking to him about, you know, we're not there without him. Like, it, like it's okay. You know, trying to console him a little bit as we walked to the to the locker room. And I mean, this giant man that looks fearless and he's just sobbing like a, a kid. And he walks in, and um, everybody starts, you know, patting him on the back. And Jay Hay starts starts everything with just like, let's remember um, who we are, how we got here. We're the best team in, in major league baseball. We've got the best record. We've been the best team all year long. Um, we did that by supporting each other, loving each other, playing for one another. Um, some powerful words. It feels like it went by really fast, but it was powerful words. It was a powerful moment. And we walk out and, and the rain stopped already. Riz is getting ready to hit. Schwarber's getting ready to hit. I saw Schwarber grabbing his batting gloves. He's talking trash about what he's going to do to Shaw. It was just like <laughs> it's a nice reset for us and and get our get our uh, get our minds back in the right place. And and the rest is really history. It's important that there's no manager in that room, isn't it? And you're a manager now, but you can see how important it was that Joe wasn't there for for whatever reason. It's because it's you guys. Yeah. Well. Exactly. Well, at the end of the day, like I, I think like being in this seat now, like. 
there's so much that the players have to take on for themselves. Like it's, it's more organic that way. The, the manager and the coaches, we're just a support staff to help facilitate winning and help set guys up to succeed. Like the team really is the players. The team is how they come together and how they support each other and how they play for one another and what they do off the field and how it translates on the field and loving the guy next to you and wanting his success um, just as bad as you want your own. And, and that unselfishness and that family atmosphere and like that's what you want to create. And it's got to come from the guys. It's got to come from that group um, because it, it's, it's them out there fighting and battling uh, every single night. And, and we had a really special group. And that's why that's why I'm connected for life with the guys that you win with. You, you, that, that's not going away. There's so many memories from that and so many great things. And, and you love your brother next to you. You love the, the teammate aspect of like everybody. And you've got so many great stories and connection with those guys. It's just like that's why it's, it's so special for the, rest of, um, for the rest of history, you know. As someone who's never been on Dancing with the Stars, that that overnight stardom, you 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 get the, you you hit the homer, you win the World Series. Next thing I know, you're on Saturday Night Live. Next thing I know, after that, you're on Dancing with the Stars. Like, what is it like? Because catchers, just as a as a position, you all are kind of like the offensive lineman. You kind of just do your job. There's not a lot of flash. You just do your like. It, to go from that to being in the spotlight, what was that like? Was that overwhelming or was that cool? Because you have a lot of charisma. There's a lot of charismatic-ass catchers. But it just seems like most catchers just, hey, man, I'm just out there doing my job and contributing. Like, you're not flashing the tag like Javi <laughs> or anything. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I don't know, man. I think, like, th- that was really cool. I was just, you know, the one thing that I would say— that look, I was the backup catcher too. Not even, not even the star. I was probably the third string once Wilson came up. You know, I just called Johnny, and so like being in that realm and being around uh, those guys and just doing my part. My last year when I knew I was retiring, the one thing that, I've, or many things that Joe Madden taught me, but one thing that I, I took into that season, 2016, and I learned from Ryan Dempster when he retired after we won the World Series in Boston was like, take it, take, take every moment and appreciate it like try to enjoy yourself don't take anything for granted enjoy the fans enjoy going to philly and do stuff that you, and and we're going down to gino's and grabbing cheesesteaks in the middle of the night or we're going to new york and walking times square at four in the morning like we've done some crazy stuff i remember in boston um part of like we were in game six and Stephen drew hit a home run to put us up a, a pretty good bit uh when to the day we won the world series in boston i remember being on deck and he had a home run and like as soon as he hit it i knew i was gone i just turned and watched the fans reaction um and it's one of the coolest things i've ever done in the moment i stepped outside of being a player for two seconds and just watched the fans reaction to this home run and it was like i can i'm playing it back in my head right now like gives me chills like just the place erupts and everybody gets up and stands up at different moments and um and it was just electric man and 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 those moments like i'll I'll, i've got pictures and and stories from uh, my last years and knowing that i was retiring just gave it more of the finality of like why not appreciate everything and i take a lot of those lessons still into today and try not to get too bogged down and like what's wrong or trying to look at the negative things like let's try to find some positives and i did that in my last season with chicago i did a lot of fun things and took advantage of the moments and um john said yes to a lot of opportunities and that just carried into my post career when things got thrown my way you want to do saturday night live you want to go on ellen you want to <laughs> you want to go do dancing with the stars there's just a lot of well yeah like why not right love it well papa ross we're excited to see what you do with this new bunch and i hope that you get a ring as a manager as well and then you can truly be the king of chicago and have a hot dog named after you that's true celebrity <laughs> all right well it's good talking to you guys i appreciate you having me on okay matt look we got to do one last thing because we didn't really break it down with David Ross. We got to come back around. And we got to talk about the final out. Brian Terrizzo, especially the real reason why we really need to break down this final out is because we have a clip of Pat Hughes breaking down his legendary call. But to recap the final inning, every, every, everybody knows the story. After the rain delay, the Cubs come out. They're fired up. They get two runs in the top of the tent. Then the Indians make some noise of their own. They get one back off another big hit from Rajah Davis off of Carl Edwards. 
And so now Mike Montgomery is in to pitch. Man on first, and Michael Martinez is on. And that's the famous final out that everyone remembers. And it's a it's a little infield ground ball. It's a little nothing, a little nubber towards third base. And everybody knows they're going to do this. They're going to get this done. And you know who knew too? Chris Bryant knew. He was grinning. He's flat out grinning. As he slips, he slipped anyway, and he fell down, but he was grinning the whole way. And he throws it to Rizzo, and that's that. And I always think of that Bryant grin as symbolic of how those kids, those new Cubs, did not know about the history of losing enough. They didn't feel it intimately. They didn't have to carry the weight of it. So this all felt doable because Chris Bryant was just doing his thing. He loved smiling. Smiling was his favorite. It was his absolute favorite. And he did it all the time, and he did it right there on the final out of the World Series. He's smiling. He slips. He throws it across for Rizzo. Cubs win the World Series, but I, my call is clearly not nearly as good as the great Pat Hughes. This, is, this clip is a couple minutes, but I think it's worth hearing how he got into the mindset of seeing the same thing you saw, Matt. Like, oh, my God, they're going to do it. And so, so Pat, at the end, as it's as it's getting close, and there's a ground ball to Bryant, and he slips, but it looks like he's still gonna have it. Are you are you trying to nail the call? Uh, have you did you script anything for yourself? Trying to let yourself feel it and just ad lib? What what's the thought process at that point? No, I tell people, Matt. I say um, that's a very slippery slope to ever try to script out anything regarding play-by-play. Let's take two different scenarios. A baseball game can end in a hundred different ways. It can end on a bases-loaded walk, bases-loaded homer. It can end on a strikeout or a wild pitch. You don't have any idea. It can be a one-to-nothing game. It can be a 12-to-nothing game. So if you script out something and you think it's real fancy and flowery and, oh boy, this is going to be really something great, um, it might be very appropriate for a one nothing game, but it would be totally inappropriate for a 12 nothing game. The Cubs are one out away from winning the title. And Cub fans, you are going to remember where you were right now for the rest of your life. But if there's anything that I was proud of on the last call, I was able to say, a little bouncer slowly. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. So I actually got slowly in there. Um, and then I, I made a call that I don't think I've ever made. I say, He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. Bryant will glove it and throw to Rizzo. And I have no idea where it came from because usually it's a bouncer to Bryant. He'll throw to first and it's in time. But I said, He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. And I was, I guess, hoping that people knew that Rizzo played first base. <laughs> because, um, usually I, I wouldn't, it's, I've just never made a call quite like that. And one of the best sights of my whole life was seeing the umpire Joe West pump up the right arm signaling out. And as soon as he said that, in time! In time. And the and Chicago Cubs win the World Series! Do you think subconsciously you, you personalized it? Because you knew yeah. these guys, you had you had watched these guys. These were you watched them come up, watch them arrive, and then here they all were kind of winning together. That uh, it probably felt more personal, Pat. Well, maybe maybe there's something to that, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's very cool that it was Bryant to Rizzo, the two cornerstones, the two stalwarts right in the middle of your batting order and they're good buddies and and they really were a big big part of the cubs at that time and and for several years thereafter um but yes that was uh that was a special moment and um i you know you don't really have time to to think about planning uh plays out because radio play by play it's all about reaction you know you react to what you see and if you watch a video, look at Ben Zobrist. I happen to see him running in from left field. And sometimes when you jump up, you're so happy. It's like his arms and legs went in four different directions. And he was so happy. And I thought, that's like a 10-year-old. 
The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. You know, you're just so happy. It's your birthday, and you, you got your buddies there, and you got your birthday cake. Uh, <laughs> and then I said, the Cubs have done it. The longest drought in the history of American sports is over, and the celebration begins. So it's not it, – don't, don't get me wrong. I, I don't um, – I, I, I could have done better. Anybody could have done better maybe, but um, I did the best I could, and it's certainly not the greatest call that's ever been made, but I can live with it considering the tension and the drama of the moment. I feel like I did okay, and um, I hope to do it again someday. Wow. How about Pat Hughes and knowing that he's going to hear that forever and being all right with it? You know, he, he maybe you dream of being better, but he wasn't out there scripting it like Jim Nance at the end of the Masters. You know, he's like he's letting the moment play out and just trying to give it his whole being. I thought it was great. And, you know, there were people crying, like literally bawling. Like I'm like cheering. I have a sign and losers no more. And I'm looking, and it's just a guy on the phone with his wife, wherever she is, and they're just crying together. And it was this beautiful but happy but sad. And and, and the Indian fans are just kind of quietly walking out of the stadium, and they're not bothering anyone. And the Cub fans aren't in their face. It's nothing rude. It was, dare I say, it was very beautiful, very gentlemanly. I think I think beautiful is 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 fair. Beautiful is perfect. I love the way you described that, Roy. That even as you were feeling it deeply, you looked around and saw others feeling it even deeper. It's kind of like what Pat said. And from my perspective, I mean, I can't pretend to have felt it the way that lifelong Cub fans have felt it. I'm born and bred a Red Sox fan, but my job, luckily, let me be a vessel for that emotion that all these people were feeling like that night and the next day and the day of the parade, just hearing all these stories. And and there's one story that always sticks with me that a guy told about being a White Sox fan in a Southside bar. And there's like six of them hanging out, watching the Cubs going for it in game seven. And there was this old guy Cubs fan off in the corner, watching alone on the South side of Chicago with a Cubs hat. And he's watching and the Cubs win the world series and that guy, that old guy starts crying and jumping up and down. And this young White Sox fan decides to go over and say congratulations, right? And he sticks out his hand and says, just wanted to say congratulations, sir. And that old man Cub fan grabbed him and hugged him so hard and just cried into his shoulder. One guy wearing a Sox hat, one guy wearing a Cubs hat. Because it, it was just, he was feeling it like so many were and needed to share that feeling with anybody who was there. And I think next episode, Roy, we're going to have a huge pile of those things because that's the emotional gold here. A lot of stories about what it was like for Cub fans and Cub people when they finally did win the whole thing. Uh, You know, next episode, man, we need to talk about everything that happened after game seven. I want to hear what happened on that private jet. I've never been told, never been told. I think you're the guy. You're the guy to tell it to. I want to hear about how you go from man in robe at game to man in robe on Daily Show set. Would you please give me that stuff? Oh, that robe stank of rain and the city of Cleveland atmosphere. That robe had to go straight to a dry cleaners after I walked off that Daily Show set. Yeah, you were you were man on private jet. I was man with robe folded under arms because he was tired of evil looks at the airport while boarding his Southwest flight. But oh, we'll do that next episode. And also, some of the guests we've already talked to, they're going to tell us their stories about what happened to them after Game 7 and what it was like. And also, some, some other guests and people who we haven't talked to yet are going to pop in and tell us some of their, you know, celebratory, good vibe, good time stories that were happening in the streets of Chicago and wherever they were. That's coming up next episode, the final episode of The Run. Stick around and tell a friend if they missed this one. They need to hear it, right? I think so. The Run is a production of Odyssey in partnership with Major League Baseball. 
Jody Avergan of Roulette Productions is our executive producer. Justin Kaufman is senior producer. Mixing by Joanna Ketcher at Nice Matters. Our theme song is a cover of Steve Goodman's Go Cubs Go by Chicago's very own The Hood Internet. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley and Mike D. at Odyssey and Nick Trotta at Major League Baseball. Mitch Rosen, Dustin Hapley, and Russ Matera and everybody else at 670 The Score. Also to everyone at Odyssey and Major League Baseball who helped make this happen. Also, big thanks to Brian McCray, Sean Bosky, and Turk Wendell's toothbrush. Uh, Roy, you know, Kerry Wood is listening to every single credit sequence of this show, just hoping to get a mention. He's still the king of Chicago. He doesn't deserve a mention. Everybody loves him. Okay.